play them on the money line, and then roll it over every single time they win. Way out of here. Oh, goodness. The last seven games in which they've come in with rest have all gone under. Plus 115, the price I paid for this, the I like it. Makes the catch at the 10, and he's in for a touchdown. This is Behind the Bets, the podcast. Welcome in to the latest Behind the Bets podcast. I am Doug Kazarian. We are taping this on Wednesday, July 21st. It is officially the offseason in the NBA. The Milwaukee Bucks get it done. Four straight wins, and, and Giannis just incredible. What what can you say? Just a dominating performance, a 50-burger in the closeout game six, but really the entire series. We didn't know what to expect coming off the injury, and we didn't know he would play. And uh, congratulations to the Bucks. 50 years waiting, uh, and they get it done. Maybe the Suns will be back, but they had a magical run as well. So we turn the page to football, and we're going to be doing a lot of football in the coming weeks as we approach both the regular season of both college football and the NFL. Today's guest is Tom Hart. You've heard him call a bunch of games. He does baseball, does Korean baseball last summer, but also does a ton of SEC games. He is a great listen, a great dude, and he has tons of information coming from at, uh, at the SEC media days and really just from all his years calling these games. We touch on every single SEC team. We talk about the win total, all the storylines, whether it be quarterback-driven, coach-driven, key ingredients, it's it's for any better, this is what you want to listen. It's longer than we normally go, for sure. But obviously, you can come back and listen uh, and get your notes ready for college football. Even in August, you can come back to this because it is a ton of interest across the board. So, uh, psyched to sit down with Tom Hart. We've never had him on the pod, but he's an awesome Awesome wealth of information. Go pick me out a winner, Bobby. I am psyched for this next guest on the Behind the Bets podcast. And I always joke on this pod and also on air that I blow up everyone's cell phones. It's nice to finally get them on the show and actually let others glean the wisdom. Tom Hart, how are you, my friend? Doug, I'm great. I'm, I'm thrilled to be with you finally on one of your shows because it goes both ways. I find, found a way to get you on a Korean baseball broadcast. I will find a way to use you on any platform that I have because your content is, is amazing and it's engaging and it, it reaches into more sports and more homes than it ever has before. And it continues to grow. And I think fans and viewers want it, want to hear about your expertise. Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. It's just uh, when I was putting together basically action and business plans a long time ago, I was like, it's a, it, cr- it creates new conversations about sports, right? Things can get kind of stale, especially in a sport like football, where you can only talk about the X factor for so long between Monday and Friday, right? And it's just a new conversation and sort of a new angle, even if it doesn't lead to a pick, it makes things interesting. And it puts things in context as well, like, you know, they're, you know, the, the Phoenix Suns were on the verge of an NBA title last right? They would have been, there's only been four teams, 15 to one or larger, longer in the finals or ever to win it all in the NBA. So it just puts things in perspective, gives this kind of long shot um, context. So always good stuff on that front. But yes, the Korean baseball, you, you definitely uh, roll, let your hair down a little bit on those broadcasts. I'm sitting there giggling way too much. And we can do that here, Tom. So uh, first things first, you obviously were at SEC Media Days. We had a lot of coverage there. Some interesting comments, whether it be the Vanderbilt head coach or uh, other uh, other ones that made people chuckle. I guess before we get into each team, what was kind of like your biggest takeaway uh, heading into this season? Well, my biggest takeaway happened day one when Greg Sankey 
took the mic and, and, and at the podium to, to use that time, which is incredibly valuable real estate, where he typically gives a state of the conference address and extols the virtues of the con conference and talks about the greatness of the league. And, and make no mistake, he did that. But he also uses that as a moment to deliver messages. And he delivered uh, a message that surprised me a little bit. Now, keep in mind, I was at the College World Series when NC State had to cancel their game because of uh, COVID protocol and got right. kicked out of the tournament. And that was a red flag to me because, to be perfectly honest, I kind of feel like by that time, this was mid-June, most of us had, from a sports perspective, had kind of moved on. We'd seen teams have success and leagues have success putting on events. And so it was back of mind until, poof, this, this team gets kicked out and they would have had a really good chance as an underdog going in at winning the whole thing. So to that point, Greg Sankey stands at the podium and he says, listen, we've got a long way to go to meet the vaccination threshold with, within this league. And the conference itself is putting out homos and commercials and encouraging people and saying that the SEC backs the vax. And, and keep in mind the footprint that the SEC sits in, that could be considered controversial by some of their sure. fans. So for him to come out and say that, that was a giant red flag in my mind because I thought to myself two things. Number one, if, if there is still a threat of games being lost in the SEC, that must be a reason why he's addressing this, right? And number two, if the SEC, with all of its resources and all of its messaging and all of its um, medical support, is still in this situation, well, then what does that say about other leagues? You know, what does that say about the Big 12 or the ACC or the American or or going down to the Sun Belt? And if it's a problem for the SEC, I, I bet that it's probably a problem throughout college football. And the concern is the vacation rates have to get above a certain threshold so we can feel confident that the season can go on interrupted. And, and when I say season, I mean everybody, all 120 plus the lower division teams that will play division one teams and I wasn't prepared for the severity of his comments and him using that valuable real estate and time to focus on it yeah and to your point it hit home having just come off the college world series and that nc state situation that's a great point because we kind of collectively kind of moved on thought we had pushed through but we are regressing a little bit and i think that applies to the betters what you just said about win totals i mean look every book's going to have different fine print and we obviously some learned the hard way last year I know baseball win totals that said it's it's live as long as there's 150 games instead of 160. Uh, so some books just wanted to avoid it. So if you don't want to tie up money that long, that's something to have in the back of your mind. Uh, some will be considered forfeits too. There's leagues that are addressing that possibility. So be careful out there, but it is certainly applicable. And we know more this year in terms of how things uh, can go down. Last year, we had some games rescheduled, especially in the NFL, right? They played every single game, but we also had a game on every day of the week. Uh, throughout the season but something to keep in mind for sure especially when you have to tie up stuff for win totals or other kind of futures let's get into each team um, and we can go rapid fire on some teams obviously other teams will warrant longer discussion but obviously with the sec it starts with alabama an odds on favorite this year about a minus a buck 30 give or take win total of 11 and a half that's regular season win total to refresh those so does not include the conference title game or the bowl games so it's basically will alabama go undefeated now the last couple of years, they just reloaded, and that typically is what Nick Saban does, and that includes the coaches, right? You lose Sark, you reload. In this case, it's Bill O'Brien, who did a nice job at Penn State before going over the Houston Texans. 
But the uh, look, Mac Jones was new last year, and he was fantastic. Bryce Young comes in, stud California quarterback, dual threat, Gatorade Player of the Year as a high school uh, in, in his high school career, and came from a huge program. But it's it's different, right? It's it's not necessarily automatic, right? So Jalen Hurts had his struggles back in the day as well. What are what are your major concerns here with this Alabama team? No Georgia on the schedule, so undefeated certainly on the table. But what are your major concerns here? I don't have major concerns. Um, you mentioned the turnover on the coaching staff. I think they have five new coaches this year. But just look at the history under under Saban, the recent history. He had Sark as the OC for two years. Before that, Michael Loxley for one. That was with Tua. Brian Dable for one. That was with Jalen Hurts. Obviously, Kiffin was there before that. Um, the ability to have success at the level which Nick Saban has achieved, that six national championships in the last 12 years, with this rotating cast of characters as both offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators is, is nothing short of, of mind boggling. And they come there for a reason. And that's to, that's to kickstart their career or, or restart it or rehab their image, whatever it might be. And so what they're doing offensively, yes, they've got a new quarterback. Yes. They've lost a, a ton of it, but they just, it's reload and replace and, and, and nobody does it like that. So I'm not concerned about personnel defensively. They're very good. They've got great young talent. Um, in the secondary, some people think there might be some questions in the secondary. The guys I saw there last year playing as freshmen um, were legit All-America candidates back there. And I, I think they're going to be in good shape with a guy like Josh Job at, at one corner, especially. Um, but Bill O'Brien comes in and here's a guy who is a versatile offensive mind going back from his Penn State days. You can go back to his Georgia Tech days when he was with Ralph Regent. There's a lot of creativity in that mind. So he can he can take these new high-powered offenses with these pieces and and adapt because he's coached a lot of different styles. In fact, when he was at Tech with Ralph Regent, they had a game against Florida State where they checked from five wide into the wishbone. Like that's how versatile <laughs> this guy can be in any given segment. So he comes in and Saban says, you know, listen, he doesn't know if he's going to be there for a year or two years or three years, but O'Brien's hope is you come in, you rehab the offense, your image, boom, you're back out the door to high paying head coaching job. It's going to be the same offense. They're going to do what they've done, which is, um, you know, open it up, push the ball downfield, let your athletes be athletes. And instead of having the quarterback room, shift and learn new philosophy and lingo and the wide receivers have to worry about it. And the O-line, by the way, new O-line coach there is as well with uh, Doug Marone in, in the mix wow. and O-line. I mean, look, he's got two former NFL guys wow. as, as coaches on his offensive staff. That's what he does. So I don't, I don't expect Alabama to take a, a step back at all. I, I think they meet and exceed expectations. The one game on the, on the schedule that, you know, will be the most interesting. And I think the pivotal game is on the road at Kyle Field on October 9th against Texas A&M because I really love A&M's team coming into this season. That is the high-powered matchup in the SEC this year. And as good as the West is, and we'll talk about that more, the, outside of A&M, it's really a second and third tier West. It's got great depth, but it doesn't have a high number of elite teams outside of those top two, in my opinion. Yeah, it's always funny you hear this best conference discussion, and I've obviously been a part of it back when I hosted College Game Day. It's always like, well, how do you define it? Most championship contenders, best middle of the pack, the the, the highest floor of your conference, 
there's so many ways to kind of have that discussion with the best conference, but that's a great point. If there's depth, that's, that's, that's good, but it's just one part of the convo. By the way, Alabama in advanced kind of future line is about a 10 and a half, 11 and a half point favorite at College Station. Um, of course, that could come down, that can go up between now and then. I wonder what your thoughts are on Bryce Young. Obviously made some headlines with the names, images, and likeness of around a million dollars. Look, it's a high-profile program. If the over-under is set as basically a coin flip that they go undefeated, and he's going to have, given his athleticism, he's going to have Heisman moments, so to speak. And when you play for a blue blood like Bama, you're going to be on national television a lot. I think instead of going over 11 and a half, if you like that side, you might as well go Bryce Young 12 to 1, 10 to 1 to win the Heisman Trophy. Any thoughts there? Mm. I, I love that philosophy because you're absolutely right. Listen, you don't get nearly a million dollars in endorsement deals in name, image, and likeness without having started a game in college football <laughs> unless you're the Alabama quarterback. That's why that money is at his feet and being thrown at him. Um, we, we know he's versatile. We know he's athletic. We know to have weapons on the edge, including Mechie, who's back for another yeah. season. We know he's going to have a loaded backfield. He's going to put up big numbers the fascinating part to me and speaking to what they will be offensively is years ago when Lane Kiffin came in after getting fired by USC to run the offense he decided before they even started installing an offense he came to seven and he said listen I know you hired me to run what we ran at C what I've learned is that that doesn't work we need to be more like Oregon and we've got to be able to score 50 points a game to be able to win in the modern college football and the, the key to Nick Saban's success is the willingness and ability to adapt and change with the times. He, it, unlike some other legendary coaches who petered out towards the end of their career, he's obviously going as hard as ever. They opened it up. They turned it up. They went no huddle, something that he espoused and thought was, you know, you know packed with the devil. Um, and we saw, we saw how that contributes to individual success when you have wide receivers outrunning anybody and, and turning, you know, a five-yard slant into a 95-yard touchdown as they did last year. So I, I, I do not doubt Alabama's offense or their playmaking ability um, because they just have loads and loads and lines and lines of weapons. Yeah, and, and we always look at this kind of – and it's like, kind of like what I say about live betting. Is this the best, you know, number I can get at any – you know, if you if you like Bryce Young at twelve to one, ten to one, it's not going to go higher. Like they they may, I mean, I guess they could lose to Miami in the opener, but they're eighteen point favorites. But it's only going to come down, and and there's going to be a lot of uh, movement in the betting board that first month, like we've seen uh, routinely over the years. Some guy just you know jumps off the page. Lamar Jackson after they uh, smacked Florida State, I think they were like a one point dog or something at home in early mid September, and then he became one of the favorites. So it's just stuff that uh, you got to kind of beat beat the market on and that's something a uh, good reminder that for sure Saban has certainly adapted with the times and that is I in my opinion makes him the best ever well let's let me to, let me jump okay, in ahead. here real quick Doug like just building off of that and finding value what you said a moment ago like A&M is going to be a preseason top five team they finished fourth in the country last year their schedule sets up with a lot of Fairly easy games, if not simple games, leading into that October 9th matchup against Alabama. If that's a double that you said it was like 10 and a half, 11 right now, Correct. to me, that's going to come down drastically as the buildup to that game um, as we get to that point, because it's going to be the premier game in college football that weekend. a and going to be undefeated going into that game. They've got a great secondary with length at corner, 6'2 and 6'3, and people are going to look at it and say, hey, Mace is the defense that can slow 
Alabama down and match up with those wide receivers. So I would expect that. I mean, I don't know what it's going to be. That's your area of expertise, but that's not going to stay that high, in my opinion, come game week. It's 100% accurate. I've I've talked to like four pro bettors casually, and they all think that number is way too high. But there is a chance that Alabama looks great out of the gates, maybe in that high-profile game against Miami in – Let's talk about AM. We'll just get to get into it. They have a win total of nine and a half. Obviously, high expectations. Jimbo Fisher had the comment, and I'm gonna paraphrase, like, you know, we expect to beat Alabama kind of thing, which is what frankly what you want your coach to do. But he, he hasn't really delivered. He did at times had some big wins with Kellen Mond, but there's a new quarterback here uh for them. Is that and then obviously Saban will have be ready on a defensive game plan standpoint. Are th- is, are they up for the challenge? I guess is my point. I know the hype will be there for this game, but will it actually translate to the field? Jimbo is a, he's a no nonsense guy, right? Like he, he's not into um, expectations or woulda, coulda, shoulda, but the bottom line is that they lost one game last year and that was to Alabama. Now they gave up 52 points in that game. I mentioned they're going to be better defensively on the back end. They've got a really good defensive coordinator in Mike Elko. Um, And even though they will have an un an untested quarterback back there is probably going to be Haynes King, who's a great athlete and can do is very versatile back there, can do a lot of things. He's got a thousand yard rusher returning in Isaiah Spiller. He's got Anaya Smith at wide receiver who can get separation and has elite speed. He's got Chase Lane and another wide receiver, Ezekiel Jones. He's got an incredibly productive tight end and Jalen Weidermeyer. And by the way, that's that's one position that um, kind of gets lost in the shuffle, but Jimbo has done an amazing job over since he's been at AM, is taking that tight end and making prolific by getting him into mismatches, uh, taking him be unattached, putting him in the slot or even further out at the numbers, getting a matchup with a linebacker or getting one of his speedy wide receivers in a mismatch because they have to cover the tight end like a wide receiver. So um, the only question mark for Texas A&M going in, in my opinion, because Jimbo is great with quarterbacks, he's really good at it, uh, will be offensive line. They don't return a whole lot of starts. They got another one of the Matthews clan in its center who wasn't a starter last year. They got their left tackle, Kenyon Green, coming back. He's monster of a left tackle. But all the pieces are there, in my opinion, where this offense can can absolutely pick up where they left off on, on after a one-loss season last year. Akela Mond was, a, was there forever, and he was a good quarterback. But sometimes I felt like he was their own worst enemy. A few years ago against Clemson, he got sacked something like six times. He didn't do a great job getting the ball, uh, getting rid of the ball when he needed to. And I felt like as good an offensive mind as Jimbo is, that there was a ceiling at some point, Mond, that they just weren't able to break through, maybe because of his lack of mobility. But uh, I, I, I think I think AM is an elite team. They're easily a top five team. And I would not be surprised if they win that game against Alabama, being that it is in on their home field. Yeah, and it's coming after an old miss game. And uh it's relatively early in the season. And I say that's important because Bama has had a lot of experience coming back the last couple of years. This there's a lot of new pieces on in the offense this year by their standards. So I think if you're gonna get Bama, you're gonna get them earlier in the season, in my humble opinion. I wanna discuss further on this with, with Georgia. They've been kind of a chic pick the last couple of years because they obviously have the recruiting classes, but they've been unable to get over the hump, whether it goes back to Kirby Smart's questionable fake punt in the SEC championship game. But they're just some of those big games they just haven't delivered. And it's not easy to beat Bama. I get it. Very few teams have done it. Um, 
they seem to have resolved their quarterback issues with JT Daniels throughout the season, but it's also a team that, you know, whether it be the O-line struggled against Vanderbilt, I'll never get that out of my mind. Um, there's just always something kind of a little, I don't know, lacking in terms of the elite, elite, elite with Georgia. It's, it's so interesting you use that word because this was the conversation I had multiple days with multiple people at SEC Media Day is, do you consider Georgia an elite program? And everybody agrees immediately. Well, yes, of course they're elite. Look at the recruiting. Look at the talent base that they had to recruit from. Look at the facilities and the attendance and the promise of that program. Yet they haven't won a national title since 1980. Um, th this is a program that has been on the cusp almost for too long, right? Yeah. Um, their quarterback play to start last season was was abysmal, but they were able to lean on a really good running game. The, the problem they had is Todd Monken did not have weapons wide receiver that were either, that were both dependable and electric. So whether it was because of injuries or because of the quarterback play, they weren't willing or able to really open it up offensively. They've got a lot of weapons back at wide receiver, assuming they will all be healthy. Pickens is their best. George Pickens is their best wide receiver. He won't be back until late in the season. But in my opinion, Georgia's schedule is easy enough that that's going to feel like a, a, a Major League Baseball trade deadline acquisition. Like they're going to add a guy in mid-November who's got All-American status. It's like going out picking up Verlander for the postseason. So – they have a quarterback in Daniels who they now trust to run this offense. It should be wide open. They have a full stable of running backs. The O-line, I think, will be good. They have a tight end who is a monster um, who, who can do anything they want. Darnell Washington, 6'7", something like 270 pounds. There is a lot of pressure on Kirby Smart to get over that hump immediately because every time you talk to a Georgia fan, it's – Yes, but. Yes, we won the Rose Bowl, but we lost the national championship. Yes, we've made it to Atlanta, but we've lost to Alabama. Um, missed out on a trip to, to Atlanta last year. I think they're all going in the right direction. Talking to this coaching staff in the spring, getting ready for the spring game, there's an incredible amount of confidence in what JT Daniels brings to the program, uh, both from a talent perspective, because he's got the arm to stretch the field, and a preparation perspective. I think they're in. I think they're in really good shape. They're the they're the class of the East. I think everybody. I don't want to say everybody taking a step back, but their main competitor in the East, Florida, is probably going to take a, a step back or a half step back this year. And Georgia doesn't have Alabama on the regular season schedule. Um, what what will be really interesting is the Clemson game to open the season. Remember the Tour de France? How there's that wreck day one when the woman right, stepped right, in right. front of the lane. So you look at it, you go, oh, my gosh, this is a disaster. It turns out, to the best of my knowledge, that that wreck, even though it, it took down a lot of the leaders and favorites, had zero impact on the race itself because the season is so long. This Clemson game coming game one of the season and the ease of the schedules for both of those programs going forward. I mean, my bosses at, at ESPN and ABC aren't going to like me saying this. I don't think that game matters. You know, either program can drop that game and cruise through the rest of the schedule and still accomplish the goals that are in front of them. I don't know how that would impact, you know, how you think about the win total. Certainly neither coach wants to lose that game. I just I just think that both of those programs are still national championship contenders 
and barring a, a an injury to their starting quarterback in that game, I don't see that result being a roadblock. I agree. I think it could help the resume down the road. It was funny, uh, Oklahoma benefited from when they had the Ohio State home and home those couple of years. Like it helped that they played them and then it hurt that they lost. And it, 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 it can help down the road. Um, if they don't run, if they don't run the table, maybe you have two losses, things like that. So win total for Georgia is 10 and a half. Obviously that game they're plus four. I think you got to grab it. If you can, it's going to go lower. I think it closes three or lower, but, um, look, the Bulldogs have set the bar, right? So yes, they have had strong success, but Aaron Murray running out of time at the end of the sec championship game to yeah. obviously throwing the game winning touchdown pass in overtime in the national championship game. It's, we're just splitting hairs here. They're obviously right there in the discussion. It's just tough to get over the hump when you have Bama. And last year, obviously, Florida was really good. Um, so 10.5 is your win total. Again, no Bama on the schedule in the regular season. It's manageable after that Clemson. So if you can get Clemson, that over 10.5 looks pretty pretty solid. I want to talk about Florida. Kyle Trask is gone. Uh, Kyle Pitts, McGee, as I like to call him, is also gone. Some other studs. <laughs> Uh, Emery Jones, he was used a little bit last year. He's total dual threat, very different than Trask. Um, his ceiling seems like really high. Can Dan Mullen maximize that with a win total of nine? They basically, it's a really interesting schedule. They have three games that I think, um, basically they're only three games they, they're going to lose, right? So they have Bama and, um, I'm trying to think, is it in Tuscaloosa? Then they they no, they're at home. It's, so that, it's, was, that is that is in that is in Gainesville, one right, of the rare the trips for Alabama coming to the swamp. Yeah, and and they get Georgia uh, in the cocktail party, and then they have to go at LSU, which will be a good one. But then outside of that, it's a pretty manageable schedule. So with a win total of nine, it's just kind of an interesting discussion with the Gators. They have to hold serve against the other teams, and then it comes down to maybe the game at Baton Rouge. I'll give you a pivotal game for him. And, and I think this is what your listeners would, would want to key on when you talk about the win total. Um, go to Columbia, Missouri, the Saturday before Thanksgiving. Um, Columbia, Missouri on November 20th is, is almost polar opposite from Gainesville, Florida at that time of year. You don't know what you're going to get. You rewind a few years ago before Mullen got there, the, the last gasp of the Jim McElwain era and the death rattle came in a game at Columbia, Missouri that was cold and dreary and there weren't 85,000 people in the stands. It was a bring your own energy type of game and their players told us begin next season. We asked them about that moment of their year. They said, well, we quit that day. Oh. That, that was the day we quit. And they owned it and they took accountability for it. And they ended up, you know, they've been really good under Mullen since. I only bring that up as a reference point, because if you're Florida, the, the goal is Atlanta, right? The goal is Atlanta and a national championship after that. And um, as great as they were last year and Kyle Trask had the single best passing season in Florida history, right? Think about the great quarterbacks that they've had wow. there, especially all the guys under spur and the fun and gun. Uh, nobody had a good as good a year as Trask from a production standpoint. If you get into November and you're Florida and you've already lost to Alabama and you've already lost at LSU and you've lost to Georgia, which all three of those could happen, certainly two of those three are likely to happen, um, then what goals are left and what is kind of the mood in the office at that time? Now, all of a sudden, that game at Missouri becomes a toss-up game, right? Now, if, if they are 10-0 and 0 going into that game or 9-1 and 1 
yes, we're still playing for something. Our goals are in front of us. I, I wouldn't doubt them. I just, I just think that's a pivotal game based on that program's history going on the road uh, to Mizzou and, and could be an issue. To, to answer the first part of your question, though, I will never doubt Dan Mullen when it comes to developing quarterbacks and putting them in the, the best position to succeed. He's done it at every step, whether it was Bowling Green or Utah. I mean, he had Alex Smith running the option at times at Utah, right? He has been at his best when he's had a quarterback, a Trask notwithstanding, who's been willing to run. And he's got Emory Jones, who's probably a better runner than passer. So he is he's a versatile offensive mind. They will find ways to get Emory Jones in space. He came in with all this, all this promise and potential. But Trask was so good last year that there was no reason or time or availability to really get him on the field to get him the reps that would be most comfortable with or even, even to, to show what he can do. Uh, but I, I don't think that's going to be a, a position of concern for Florida this season. Um, I, I think he's going to be a Dan Mullen type quarterback who's going to surprise a lot of people and have big name, big games. I just think that Georgia is a, a considerable step in front of them right now. And obviously Alabama would be in the same conversation and they threw a shoe to lose the game against LSU last year. Who knows what happens at that ballot? You know, it's, that's a great breakdown, and you're absolutely right. There are situational handicapping spots that you need to kind of dig deeper. You can't just kind of assess with quick glance. And that example at Como at the end of November around Thanksgiving is certainly a perfect example. So I'm glad you stopped me and, and dove deep into that. Let's go to LSU because I think they were the epitome of a championship hangover last year in the, in the figurative sense and also the literal sense. They were parting in Baton Rouge for a long long time and obviously things struggled out of the gates with the Mississippi State game and then you know the season was okay at times but obviously a disappointment overall win totals eight and a half and they have a brutal schedule in my eyes I I think there's I counted about seven losable games now not saying they're going to lose all seven but definitely not like automatic wins and I think it starts at UCLA I, I would grab the points with the Bruins hosting the Tigers Plus four and a half. That line's going to close three or less, especially if UCLA plays well, and I think they will against Hawaii in the week zero game or whatever it's called. And I think, look, throughout the course of the season, LSU is going to be better and have their boys, but I think they're going to be ready, especially with the game under their belt. I think it could be a struggle out of the gates for the Tigers, but I also think they're going to be better than they were last year. They had really suspect quarterback play. I assume they're going with Brad Johnson's kid. Uh, what do you make of this upcoming Tiger season? Because they've lost a lot, not just players, but also coaches from that national championship team. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you just said. Um, this same breath, though, those first eight games, they could be 8-0, and that wouldn't surprise me. I, right. I don't know that there's a more pivotal game in college football relative to great programs, right? Perennial national championship contenders, which LSU is one of. I don't think there's a more pivotal game this year then choose opener against UCLA. Now, I don't think they're going to have a problem with it. I think odds are that's a two-touchdown win. Max Johnson really? should be the okay. starting quarter. Yeah, yeah. I, I just I, – I could change my mind if UCLA looks sensational against Hawaii week zero, and there is an advantage, right, having a game under your belt, the, the leap that teams make between game one and game two. So that's, that's an advantage for UCLA. This game, though, and where it stands in the calendar, remind a little bit of the 2018 LSU Miami game where people were kind of saying the same thing, like, Oh, you know, Miami's an underdog, but boy, they could come out and win that game. 
LSU wins at 33-17, gave up a garbage touchdown late, and it was a very comfortable win for Burrow and company on their way to a national championship. I could say that, and then I could, I could also say that it also reminds me of the 2017 UCLA-Texas A&M game. Uh, Kevin Sumlin's Aggies blew something like a 19-point second-half oh. lead. Their quarterback oh. went down with a broken ankle. He ends up rotating through multiple quarterbacks the rest of the season and loses his job after a six-win season. So th that's why I'm talking about this game being so pivotal because this is a – this is a fragile program right now. Ed Ogeron's not a fragile coach, but the expectations at Rouge and in that entire state are that they compete for national championships. I think they're in great shape defensively. Derek Stingley Jr. is, a, is the next superstar. He's the next Tyron Matthew. He is a lockdown dude who can go get the ball. Um, offensively, they bring a lot of weapons back. You have to look at last year within the context of the COVID situation and how it impacted that team it impacted the team when things started to fall apart early by the way Bo Pelini did not change his defensive scheme from the first half to the second half against Mike Leach's air raid and they gave up something like 700 yards passing there's a reason Bo Pelini's no longer there he was not a fit and he wasn't Ed Ogeron's hire in fact when Ogeron to the dais in Hoover this week they said what did you learn he said I learned him to do it the way I want which means I'm going to hire coaches that I want, and I'm not going to let my AD hire the coaches that he wants me to have because it's not a fit. That, that got them off to a terrible, terrible start to open the season by giving up 700 yards. They had quarterback issues. They had guys opt out, which really turned into just dudes quitting. Um, and so all of the, any and all of the talent that they had returned from that national championship team even dudes who've been drafted, they barely played for LSU last year. So that was a five-win team within the scope of the season. You know, if there were conference games that would have been an eight-win team, I think we'd feel differently about LSU as an eight-win team in a normal season versus a 500 team in a 10-game season. Um, so I've got a lot of confidence in them. I think they're going to be very good. I think the coordinators they brought in, are legit guys. It's a Joe Brady clone that they brought in to run the offense. That UCLA pivotal game to start, then McNeese, Central Michigan, at Mississippi State. That's not going to throw for 700 yards this year. Auburn at Kentucky. I mean, they're in great position when Florida comes to their place mid-October before they get into Alabama and then Texas A&M to close the season. So I, I think they pile up a lot of wins and they look impressive doing it. Does that mean they win the West? No, I, I don't think they're elite and good enough to win the West because I, I really believe Alabama number one and A&M number two um, are at a different level this year. Great presentation. I love it. Uh, you put everything in context. Who do you think starts at QB? Is it Max Johnson, the son of Brad Johnson, or Miles Brennan, who started at the beginning of last year? I'm told it's going to be Max Johnson, um, but they're going to, you know, they're going to, yeah, they're going to push him, and they're going to make sure that Miles Brennan is involved for a lot of different reasons. Um, so I don't, I don't know that that's something that we learn, you know, in August. It's probably something we learn um, the Monday of their of their opener against UCLA. All right, let's jump down to the next set of kind of tier of teams. Tennessee is super interesting because they're supposedly going to be bad, lose a bunch of guys, but you know they've got some guys coming in too. How what's what do you make of the Vols' upcoming season? I think it's going to be a disaster. Really? 
I yeah, I really do. They lost either depending on on how you count them, either thirty five or thirty seven oh. players to the transfer portal. Now. You break that down and you go, okay, five of those were walk-ons. Another, uh, about five of those were guys who were no longer welcome in the program due to either academics or suspensions of, of various reasons. Um, and that's fine. And, and as, a, as a Tennessee supporter, you could easily winnow that number down and say, oh, it's not that big a deal. And but those guys weren't going to play. Well, first of all, you were a three and 17 last year. All right. So, so you weren't that good to begin with. And the guys that you lost on the top end are starting at left tackle for Oklahoma, starting in the backfield for Oklahoma, starting running back at North Carolina. Uh, uh, your star linebacker, who was the first Jenga piece to fall and to collapse the, the entire towers, Henry Toto, who's now playing at Alabama. Like, you didn't lose dudes to a Southland Conference squad. You lost guys to top 10 programs and national championship contenders, Alabama, Oklahoma, and North Carolina, among others. You lost real talent. And I'm not saying that Josh Heupel can't build that program back up, although, you know, it's obviously been an incredible soap opera over the last 12 years. He still has a potential, and there'll be a high-scoring offense in games in which they're favored, which is an, an interesting point, I think, for your audience. But it won't happen this year. Now, all that being said, when they play Bowling Green on September 4th or Pittsburgh or Tennessee Tech, like at the end of the year, because of what Heupel, what Heupel does offensively, this could be a team that has a sub-500 record yet averages 40 points a game. Because in those three games I just mentioned, especially Tennessee Tech and Bowling Green, they could put up 55 points in those games. So there's that, that balance of – they're going to look good against inferior competition. The problem is there's not enough inferior competition on the schedule from beginning to end. But Bowling Green and Tennessee Tech certainly fit that bill. South Alabama fits that bill. Vanderbilt fits that bill. They'll, they'll put up some numbers against the worst teams on their schedule, and they'll have a really hard time staying on the field against the average and great teams on their schedule. Great breakdown. Yeah, the, I was going to say the schedule's bookended with these teams. So two of the first three are against Bowling Green and Tennessee Tech, like you mentioned, and then the final two games, South Alabama and Vanderbilt. Um, but the middle, oh, a, lot of, a lot of big names out there like Bama and uh, Florida. But, you know, maybe they steal one, maybe home to South Carolina as a win. Six is a low number um, for Tennessee, so it could be right around there. But, yeah, no, Pipel uh, comes in, revolving door quarter, uh, head coach the last couple of years. We'll see how it transpires out there in Knoxville, Ole Miss, uh, things are always interesting with Lane Kiffin, right? And he had that epic game a year ago with Bama where no one punted and it was like, I forget that stat, but it was like available yards and they got all that, like <laughs> 10 of them, right? It was like right, 1,100 right. of 1,110 yards available that they achieved on offense. But for the most part, Ole Miss, uh, they're changing quarterbacks, which I'm not a fan of. I'm curious what you're hearing with the Rebels. No, their quarterback situation is in great hands. In fact, probably the best quarterback opening day in the SEC in Matt Corral for a couple of different reasons. Um, Corral was the primary starter last year. He was a, um, a bench player two years ago when Rich Rodriguez was running the offense behind John Rice Plumley, who led the SEC in rushing and set the Ole Miss quarterback rushing record. Plumley was a backup quarterback last year and barely saw the field except for the bowl game against Indiana where he learned how to play slot receiver 
that week and had the biggest catch of the game. Plumlee is going to be a key part of their offense this year. He's going to be in the slot. He, I mean, he's got elite speed. In 2018, I, know, but I want he, him at quarterback. I think their ceiling's <laughs> higher with him at quarterback. But that's just me as a fan from afar. Well, that's that's interesting. He doesn't fit. He fit what Rich Rod did. He doesn't fit what Lane does. Um, gotcha. So that's that's the main part of of Chip. The bottom line is this is going to be the most inconsistent team in the SEC, and I say that because this. This Kiffin roller coaster is just going to be fascinating to watch. The highs are going to be really high. I think they can beat anybody on the schedule. You know, when when Ole Miss beat Alabama back-to-back years, they did it by getting some takeaways and putting a lot of points on the board when Hugh Freeze was there. They are good enough to score a ton of points against Alabama. This is what the offense is. Jerry and Ely is explosive, a running back by trade. They'll put him anywhere on the field. They got Braylon Sanders, a wide receiver. He'll be split out wide mostly. But Lane Kiffin is the best play caller in all of college football. He knows what's going to work when his team comes to the line of scrimmage, and he's able more often than not to put him in there. That's, that's the good news. The bad news is, as great as Corral has been in individual games and moments and uh, within the scope of this Kiffin offense, being able to see the game like his, like his head coach does and execute, uh, he's also been downright terrible in games. He threw 11 interceptions over two games last year. Arkansas picked them off six times. LSU picked them off five times. Now, rarely does a quarterback get to that number because usually after you've thrown your third, you're standing next to the coach on the sideline, but Kiffin loves Corral so much. He said, nah, I want to keep him in there. I think a quarterback should be able to learn. So I think, I honestly think Ole Miss is going to have, they can beat anybody on their schedule, whether they do or not will be, um, will be solely dependent on if they can have another one of those games like they did against Alabama where they're just points and points and points and points. They can lose to anybody because Corral can throw picks and their defense is just awful. Uh, if, they, if they can be serviceable, that's probably a, a one and a half win improvement. Um, and they'll be better than they were last year. But Lane is not concerned about that. Ole Miss fans are not concerned about it. They want to see the scoreboard light up and, and he'll be able to do it. So I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in, in Ole Miss as long as Corral is healthy because he's got the arm strength and the moxie and he's a, he's like the next superstar SEC quarterback, in my opinion, to be able to get it done. And, and he's a perfect match with Kiffin. Yeah. That was that great. Last point is, I mean, they're going to certainly make things interesting. We know that. And Kiffin always does, whether it be social media, play calling, he always keeps things interesting and he's become kind of in a roundabout way, very likable. And that wasn't the case necessarily when he was uh, earlier in his first stint in the SEC when he was with the Tennessee Volunteers. But now people kind of like him, and he's got that underdog mentality for the team and the offense, and that's the level playing field, right, with the spread offense and yeah. the gimmicky. That's what makes upsets happen much more in, in college football than we used to see back in the day. And quickly, think, quickly, oh, yeah. just some, some numbers of note on Corral to put specifics next to his name. He led the nation in total offense, top five in the FBS in completion percentage, passing yards per game, and total QBR last season. 385 yards from scrimmage, completed 71% of his passes. I mean, he he was really good when things were crucial, but 14 interceptions total and 11 in, in over the course of two specific games. 
Fair point. The highs are well, maybe you work those out. And and remember, I think this goes not just for Ole Miss, but for a lot of these teams, right? Last year, you don't want to say you throw it out, but it was a very irregular season, right? Training camps, preseason. I mean, there was just nothing out there uh, with with COVID and everything. There's such disruption. So hopefully things can be more normal and maybe some of these issues will be worked out with more prep time. But it's definitely, there's a, there's sometimes you have to like look past certain things and it's not just with Corral and, and the interceptions, but this goes for a lot of teams. There, You don't want to build in excuses too much, but they certainly applied last year more than any other season. Auburn, win total of seven. And sometimes uh, some of these books put out advanced lines, some of the big games like the Iron Bowl and some of the other ones. There were four games, I believe, with Auburn when the first book, I think it was DraftKings, put out advanced lines. All four moved against the Tigers, whoever they were playing. Uh, not mm. a lot is expected for Auburn this year. Brian Harson comes in from Boise State. There's got to be an adjustment period, although he does have experience as a head coach in the South. Um, it's going to take some time, I would imagine. Bo Nix never evolved like we thought he would, or at least to the degree we thought he would. And uh, it's just a tough schedule as well. I, I'm, I'm a lot of people are down on the Tigers. How would you assess them? Yeah, I don't, I don't have a whole lot of faith um, in what Auburn can accomplish this year because I, I don't have a whole lot of faith in Bo Nix as a quarterback. Um, we we haven't seen growth from him. We haven't, and and I don't want to put it all at his feet. I don't think um, Chad Morris and and Gus Malzahn did him many favors in trying. And and don't get me wrong, they tried but getting him refined to the point where he was willing to stay in the pocket and become a guy who had uh, at least confidence in his offensive line and in there and make a throw. It's, um, it's poor decisions. It's rush decisions. It's body, bad body language. He, he showed up on campus as, um, as a legacy. His dad was a great quarterback there. And you would think that they were going to build a statue of him by the time he left. It's still possible that he turns into a guy that fulfills that promise. It's just not likely, especially with the coaching chain. And then, and then the schedule, right? I mean, any other year, and I love SEC Big Ten regular season matchups. I think that's so good for the fans. Auburn goes to Penn State. Um, I, think, I think that's a tough game to win on the road on a Saturday night, probably be a whiteout. And – Despite the fact that they've got cupcakes elsewhere on the non-conference schedule with Akron, Alabama State, Georgia State, Georgia is their crossover, and they play in the West. Um, who, who would they be favored against when it comes to on the road at LSU, at Arkansas, Ole Miss, at A&M, maybe Mississippi State at home, and maybe at South Carolina, and then closing with the Iron Bowl against Alabama? I just don't see a whole lot of wins in that schedule for um, for a team that's going to be a, a, a team and a program in transition. Yes, they will be a team in transition. That is well put. And that's why their win total is a seven. But like, yeah, I mean, I think five or six is kind of what's expected. And then maybe you sneak a win in there, uh, maybe at Arkansas. But Arkansas, obviously, much better than they were a couple years ago. But oof, there's not a lot of wins there. Uh, on, on that schedule. So maybe seven. Yeah. You're, yeah. You, you're telling me then that if we assume Penn state is a loss, which I think is fair that they're going to win four games against the West to get to seven. That's uh that is an uphill. Can they beat uh, Ole Miss and Mississippi state? Could they win those toss up games? Yeah, sure. Sure. But they're not going to win all of them. 
And they're certainly going to have a hard time being competitive against the teams well in front of them, LSU, Georgia, A&M, and Alabama. And Penn State's only – they're only seven-and-a-half-point favorite right now, the Nittany Lions in Happy Valley. So, I mean, I guess the mathematically it's, it's winnable for Auburn, and obviously we know the SEC recruiting, and sometimes James Franklin will shoot himself in the foot. But um, I'm with you. I, I, and sometimes when these are solid numbers and not a half, you have to look at yourself like, is it more likely to go six or eight in this case? Like, is it more likely to lose or win because the push, you get your money back? Um, not that you always want to ang- angle wagers to push, but – to go eight and four, I'm not seeing it on that Auburn schedule. Like eight no, and four to lose, uh, it's going to be really tough to lose that one. Um, all right, so we've touched on a couple. Uh, we did go A and M already. So I mean, we're, Mississippi State with Mike Leach. Obviously, there was a lot of excitement. I mean, you talk about personalities in this conference, and then you add Mike Leach. Uh, things were really fun last year. He was all over the place, like he usually is. Can you actually build this program? here at Mississippi State? He'll need a quarterback to do so, and they've got quarterback competition right now. Um, Will Rogers, who was a true freshman starting a quarterback last year who ran the air raid in high school, uh, certainly had a better feel for it at the end of the season than he did at the beginning. But this is it, – it's going to sound counterintuitive because he's had success with one-year quarterbacks. Gardner Minshew is, is, a, is the best example of that. But Minshew had been in the air raid. Right. For years and years and years, at a, at a, even at a high level before he got there and had been in the system and understood it. This is a, a high repetition offense to be effective. It's based on doing whatever the defense gives you. And that means generally unscripted when it comes to route running. You just have to know the quarterback and the wide receiver have to be on the same page. So that's why it takes so many reps to get good at it. I mean, it's like, it's, it's like playing up tempo basketball. Like, well, where's the guy going to be? I, well, I know, I know Jimmy always likes to flare to the corner and I know Johnny likes to cut to the rim. Okay. Well, well that's, that's fine. Um, but there aren't a whole lot of set pieces in this. And I thought that the numbers were skewed a little bit last year, uh, early on, the expectation got way out of whack when they blew up against LSU. And once again, Bo Pelini refused to get out of his, his man defense. And they just, <laughs> They they ran what they ran. Um, Leach will continue to be fascinating. There's no question about that. At, at SEC media, he was asked point blank if he thought he would be the head coach of Tennessee a few years ago. This is before Pruitt got hired, and, and college football fans know the story. It was a complete debacle. And he, refer, he referred to the uh, situation at Tennessee as a coup d'etat. And he said, so I didn't get there, and I didn't get caught in the coup which I guess is good for me. Like that, that's how Mike Leach talks. That's how he thinks. The offense is going to be good. I'm, um, I don't know what it's going to be as high-powered as sometimes we fall in love with based on single-game mismatches that, that happen against either overmatched teams or overmatched coordinators like the LSU debacle. Uh, but there hasn't been a feel that, this, they, that they could be consistent, especially within the SEC West, and running that offense to their liking. I really like their defense. I like their defensive coordinator, Zach Arnett, came from New Mexico, runs some of that old school Rocky Long stuff that is um, less traditional than most people see in the SEC. They've got a lot of, they got good talent back there on the, and they've got incredible athletes. I mean, it's Mississippi State going back to the Mullen days. Like they get dudes in there that can play from a talent rich area. Um, I just, 
I don't know that Mississippi State has the overall offensive weapons to compete week in and week out with with the elite teams in this league. You know, we've already discussed those, but A&M and Alabama, LSU also, because they're not going to happen again this year. Um, and then and then whatever you think about where they stand or where they may end up, the fact that they end with the Egg Bowl and Ole Miss, which it's always has drama always. Um, I think that's, I think that's fascinating. I mean, they played really well against Ole Miss last year. They hung a half a hundred on them. Lane Kiffin's uh, program has no defense. So that can be one of those games where they, they reach that total that you think break everything else down and they score a ton of points. No, it's a great point. And I, and I think you really hit the nail on the head when you say the offense will not be as dynamic as we think they'll be or we expect because they did have two games where they were shut out offensively, Alabama and then also Kentucky. Um, we're used to it and spoiled by some of the Washington State, Mike Leach. But let's keep in mind, this team did bog down. At times they were great, um, but at times they weren't. So just you know, pump the brakes a little bit on a, the high expectations with the Bulldogs this coming season. All right, let's talk. Let's they touch got, on. They got. Go ahead. Doug, I'm sorry, but they they got so predictable last year. Eighty one percent of their plays were pass plays, and he's been good in his air raid in years past, where he's had at least a semblance of a running game. But they didn't have a running game. They weren't a threat to run. Their the offensive efficiency was near a hundred. They averaged less than five yards per play, and they didn't get great quarterback play. Like all of those doom and air raid offense, they're going to have to take a major leap at the quarterback position specifically to improve those numbers. Let's go to your alma mater. You touched on the game with Missouri hosting Florida at the end of the season near Thanksgiving. Win total of seven. I love the direction of the program, like their coaching staff. Last year was just tough, like I mentioned earlier, just with COVID. And when you have a new coach coming in, it's just a a, a steeper uphill climb to kind of turn around a program. Um, Where do things stand, stand with the Tigers? Man, that number, that seven, I was thinking about it before I got on the phone with you today. Like, that, that, that is the fairest number we've discussed today because I think they're a seven-win program, like right on the money. And it's hard for me to see them going either below that or above it. The pivotal game for Missouri, and, and this will determine a lot of futures in the SEC East, is the first SEC game of the season, September 11th. They go to Lexington to take on Kentucky. Kentucky has had Missouri's number recently. A couple of years ago, they stole a game with a, a push off in the end zone and a, a score with no time left on the clock to escape Missouri with the win. They the next year or the year before that, they won in pouring rain in Lexington. Um, Kentucky's been very good against Missouri because Mark Stoops has matched up really well with what the Tigers have done in the past. Eli Drinkwitz comes in last year. He has a more up-tempo offense. They were really, they're actually really good running the ball, even though they're going to take a a hit in the running back depth this season. But they return a quarterback in Connor Bazelak, who earned the starting role and was far and away the best quarterback they had, even even like by game four this year. So there's a lot of promise around the program. He's done a great job of getting impact transfers, um, especially as as you know, skilled position players. Mookie Cooper came in from Ohio State, a St. Louis kid now playing in his uh, in his home state. He's really good. They, they've got a bunch of guys back on the O-line and D-line. Um, but they're, they're just – the East is weak, right? So Missouri could be 
competing for second place in the East. I could absolutely see that happen. I think that's going to be a dogfight between Missouri, Kentucky, among Missouri, Kentucky, and Florida for that spot. But they could also, they were bad against ranked teams last year. They could also uh, be non-competitive against their toughest opponents, meaning A&M and on the road at Georgia. So seven wins. You're expecting it in the swing game. I mean, they go to at BC as well. Um, yeah, that's a sleeper. I think BC's really good. Like they got a NFL caliber quarterback. Right. And that's a long road trip. So that's just a sleeper game to keep your eye on. And and being a Missouri grad, I can say this. I'm not I'm not ripping on them, but those are the type of games when expectations get high. Like you come off of a win at Kentucky, they could win that game. They could be three and zero going into BC, and they could start counting the money and say, hey, we could be six and zero. Went to say AM comes to town and go lay an egg on Chestnut Hill. Like th- that is the the history of the program. Uh, and I think they're not alone. A lot of schools do that. And look, we have tons of stats to show why Saban is great. But I just think the fact that he never loses to um, unranked teams is to me like he's got like a 90, you know, whatever game win streak against unranked teams. Just remarkable uh, to keep that. And this, you know, you know this, Tom. There's all sorts. It happens in college basketball. The look-ahead spots. One of my favorite stats is both Duke and Carolina are terrible against the spread in the when they're favored by double digits in the game before playing one another. So you got like the rivalry game Saturday night. ESPN's already coming to campus, and then you got to go play like Wake at home or something like that. You're favored by 18, and you win by a buzzer beater. You know, it's like that kind of stuff. It's just hard to maintain that energy, that effort all throughout, especially when they're kids. And then the other teams bring in, you know, bring in the house because it's there, you know, you got the bullseye on your back in that game. So those types of games happen all the time. And that's the beauty of handicapping in so many ways. Uh, not too long ago, Arkansas was in the same breath with Vanderbilt and, and but they turned things around. Obviously Felipe Franks was big for them. Uh, they had some impressive wins. They've been overachieving lately in my eyes, their win totals getting up there now at six. Uh, what are you expecting from the Razorbacks? Wow, that's a that's a fascinating number. I wasn't aware that it was there. They have um, they've got a lot of momentum. They've got great talent. They've got a, a dual threat quarterback. There's five and a half out there. Jefferson. I'm sorry, five and a half is more common win total. I, okay, uh, but still, that's that's uh, yes, that's a difference. But that's right in line with kind of what I expect. They're three and seven later. I felt like they were a better team than that. Um, you know, those were all conference games and they mm-hmm. had a they had a, a tough schedule. Um, what they have is is fascinating and they have to find some balance. They got Kendall Bryles as the offensive coordinator and he wants to go, go, go. In fact, that's what he wanted to do at uh, at Florida State. They didn't have much success there because Florida State was a dumpster fire at that time. Um, but but doing what his dad did at Baylor and how they kind of reinvented the offensive in terms of going sideline to sideline and going full tempo, like they're on the front edge of that, obviously. Um, and then you got Barry Odom as a defensive coordinator, former head coach at Missouri, who had a hard time, I thought, in his Missouri career balancing, you know, do we want to be the kind of offense that runs 100 plays? Because look, look at what that does to us defensively. And I felt like Arkansas got stuck in that a couple times last year. In fact, they the, their game at Missouri was a, a 98 point total. They lost it 50 to 48. Um, they have momentum. They have opportunity. They get Texas coming to their place week two. Like th- that, as important as conference games are to Arkansas, I don't know that there's a more important game on their schedule all season 
especially with the old heads who have been around that program for, for decades and decades going back to the Southwest conference, because that is the team that they want to measure themselves against. Um, And I think, I think that's a winnable game. I think Sam, you know, I, I, I haven't done a deep dive on Texas, but we, we know the the storylines with them. Right. In fact, I was talking to a Texas guy this week. I said, man, is Texas going to be good? This, how good is Texas going to be? He said, man, we're going to be great in three years. So yeah. what is Texas going to be this year? I don't know. Um, their win, the win totals in league have been climbing. It was the SEC only schedule last year, but um, they were so much better defensively that I really feel like that will end up being their identity. They were fifth in the SEC in defensive efficiency last year after being 13th and 14th the two years prior. They've got really good young players in the secondary. I think the most underrated player in the SEC, Jalen Catalan, was a true starter as a freshman safety last year. It's rare for a freshman to be impactful, but he's the quarterback of that defense in many ways, especially the back end. They bring back productive linebackers, Grant Morgan and Bumper Poole. They got Greg Brooks at a, another secondary spot. Like, that is a really good defensive team, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're able to flex some of that defensive superiority against Texas week two. The rest of the schedule, you got to go to Georgia. Ole Miss is going to try to throw for a billion against you, though you intercepted that quarterback six times last year. Um, you know, you get a couple really easy non-conference in, in Rice and Arkansas, Pine Bluff, Georgia Southern, not as easy as those two, but but probably fairly easy form. I think that's a program on the upswing. Yeah, I think they're going to be right around that five or six win. Like you said, there's some easy should win games and then obviously some really tough games. Uh, Bama's on the schedule as well in Tuscaloosa, and that's at Baton Rouge as well. Those are back-to-back weeks, by the way. Um, but you're right. I, I like that they've come a long way. Um, Kentucky, we just we can't you know can't exclude anyone here. So Kentucky, real quick, what can we expect from from the Wildcats? Well, I was standing on the sideline last year at a Kentucky practice, which was a rarity because I was typically doing games from my basement. So it was nice to be out <laughs> in the bluegrass. But as I was talking with Mark Stoops towards the end of the season. He said, man, we've, we've got to find a way to modernize this offense. Um, their offense was pitiful at times last year. They, they have been at their best when he has had a defense that he can lean on and an offense and run the football. And he's had a lot of success doing that. But they weren't able to run the football last year, and their defense wasn't as good. And he saw his eyes were open to the fact that the rest of college football and the SEC especially had blown right by him. They didn't have wide receivers who could separate. They didn't have a downfield passing attack that, that threatened anybody. They scored less than 20 points a game. They're 116th in the country in yards per game. They're 123rd in the country in passing yards per game. They were a better passing team with Lynn Bowden at quarterback a couple of years oh. prior, and Bowden was a running back. So they, they had a long way to go. I think they made great strides. The run, the running game is going to be a lot better this year. The offensive line has always been good, and they've got some great offensive linemen back. I think they have like three of their five starters back. Um, they've got defensive ends that can get after you. Josh Pascal is a, is a superstar. DeAndre Square, great linebacker. Um, they've got good size in their secondary. They are. They've built this blue collar program 
over the years under Stoops, it goes, it kind of goes back to his Youngstown and, and big 10 roots that still has a blue collar identity. They can shut you down defensively, but now they've modernized their, their offense. So I think that is a, you know, I have those three teams in the East, Kentucky, Florida, Missouri, all kind of neck and neck. Hmm. I'd give Kentucky the slight edge. Like if they all finish second A, B, and C, I got Kentucky finishing second, which would which would surprise a lot of people. Um, but I, I I just have faith in what Stoops has built there because he's able to as a as a middle of the pack SEC program. He doesn't ever have to truly reload. They did after their ten or eleven win season um, when when they had you know, first round picks on both sides of the ball, but otherwise they just kind of graduate. You just bump players up and, and move guys up to get a little bit more playing time and then move into a starting role. But there's not this huge exodus of talent that they have to constantly race, um, which is, as we know, which is hard for anybody in this league, not named Alabama. So I've, I've got faith in that program. Yeah. So the system is replaceable and is in place too. Yeah. Uh, let's group and the part last- of that. And, and- Go ahead. I just I just want to throw this one thing in there. When I talk about the East, part of what I like about the Kentuckys and the Missouris, who in any other year would be middle of the pack in that division, is that the bottom of that division is going – they're all going to be transition, South Carolina, Vanderbilt, and Tennessee. So not only should those be easy wins for other teams in the division, but also by virtue of that, Doug, it gives you a very rare – three-game break, almost a three-game vacation within the conference, which is unheard of. So if your schedule lands such that you've got one of those cupcakes and then and then a tough game the next week or the week after, like, for example, Kentucky goes to South Carolina last week in September, that should be a comfortable win for them. And that means that they should be fully healthy and focused then when Florida comes to town first weekend of October, right? That's a huge advantage for them to not have the bumps and bruises that come with a a normally stout, deep SEC division versus what they're going to get this year. Yeah, no, they talk about the grind of the SEC and it wears on you. Obviously, uh, I know a lot of teams want to, you know, schedule cream puffs after like Bama LSU and then the, the iron bowl. It's tough to go back to back in those situations. Let's group Vanderbilt and South Carolina. Not much expected from these teams. The win totals around three and a half or four, depending on the juice and depending on the shop. Clark Lee with some interesting comments saying they have the best program um, out there uh, in the country. Not sure. I agree with that, Tom. Uh, How does he know that his guys don't even have numbers on their jerseys? (laughs) That's true. Makes it tough for the names, images, and likeness. Uh, Look, they've been a punchline. I feel bad because, you know, they've been bad for a while. But is there any sort of uh, thing we can expect from these teams over or under even? Three and 18 over the last two seasons. That's that's tied with Kansas for the, the least productive power five programs. I don't, despite the fact that they're tied with Kansas there, I don't put them in the same category as Kansas. I, I think um, Kansas has real issues that they need to fix, and they might be on their way to fixing them right now. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, the problem with Vanderbilt right now, and what I think will be a continuing problem for that program, is the transfer portal because they have had guys who are, you know, top five round NFL draft picks over the years that 
I think going forward, we'll, we'll recognize it. Like I'm, I'm productive at Vanderbilt at middle linebacker. What happens if I go to Alabama, I could start for them and, and I could enjoy playing for a national championship or playing for conference titles. So I, I just don't think Clark Lee has the talent to really get much done right now. I mean, they, they have a returning quarterback and that good sign. Um, they've got a, a defense that was uh, abysmal, um, 123rd in yards per play last year. Meanwhile, Clark Lee was directing the Notre Dame defense, 15th in the country in yards per play. He's going to have to, he's going to have to learn to win with less athletic players than what Notre Dame has had. Um, I don't see him beating Colorado State. I don't see him beating Stanford. They'll probably beat East Tennessee State. Um, I don't see a whole lot of wins left in that program. The first year coach bump at a, at a program like Vanderbilt um, or program that's really suffered it can, can be worth win shares, if you want to think of it that way. But when they lost guys who opted out or left the program last year because they were so tight with Derek Mason, Mason was fired in the middle of the season, which I still don't understand. It wouldn't have cost you Clark Lee right. or anybody else you're considering as a head coach. It just cost morale. Um, and that was a huge drop for them. Now, I will throw this out. And this goes to the beginning of our conversation with Vanderbilt. Um, we have learned that LSU has a high vaccination rate. We have learned that, that Alabama, some people in, in Hoover were saying it was upwards of 94%. Nick Saban said they're just shy of 90% from a vaccination rate. No question in my mind that Saban is going to demand his players um, be as fully vaccinated as they can from a roster standpoint. Vanderbilt will be 100%. And that is because at Vanderbilt this season, this upcoming academic year, if you're a student at Vanderbilt, you have to have a vaccination to attend class. You have, that is requirement of every Vanderbilt student. So their football program by proxy will have a hundred vaccination rate. They're not losing any games to forfeit because they can't field a team. What value you want to put on that? Uh, I'm not sure, but that's that's where the point of the, that, that's they could the get some default wins this program is yeah. yes okay. yes if anyone's going to get a default win and grab a forfeit it's going to be banned i like that that is something certainly a caveat worth mentioning an important one especially when you have a win total of about three and a half uh south carolina it's going to take some time i would imagine to turn this program around where do they stand in relation to either vanderbilt and a win total of four yeah, South Carolina lost their last six last year. Bad morale around the program. Same thing. Let's spend a bunch of money during a pandemic to fire Will Muschamp um, <laughs> when it what hadn't been done before or couldn't be done after, which I didn't. I didn't really understand. I think they're going to be better than some expect. I'm not. I, I'm not promising you like a, a a massive win total for them, but. Um, Shane Beamer can give them a first year coach's bump, you know, with the energy and enthusiasm he's bringing. They do return talent on the defensive line and, and some talent on the offensive line, which is rare because it's, it's very good talent, which is rare for a program that's going through a transition like this and a, and a coaching change. So I think, I think South Carolina is a little bit better than most people expect how that impacts their, their win total. I'm not sure, but they can get off to a 2-0 start before they, they go on the road to Georgia. They can beat Troy. They can beat Tennessee and Vandy. And then once you start putting those wins together, despite the fact that they close with Clemson, you go, huh, it, at the end of the year, 
probably a better season than than most expect in Colombia. Um, to say nothing of of what their long term prognosis is under Beamer, I think that's a, a major question mark. Yeah, no, you mentioned the schedule and out of the gates, it obviously ends with you know last few games at Mizzou, got Florida, got Clemson, even Auburn, um, and you're at A and M. That's a tough finish, not in that order, but that's a tough finish to the season, but. There is a way to maybe get momentum out of the gates. Tom, I, I appreciate everything. You are locked and loaded, so plugged in. I know our listeners are appreciative. I certainly am. And it's uh, if nothing else, it's always good to catch up. we got a full uh, hour with you. Uh, it's great. It's great, man. I, I was looking at the, at the podcast history, and I'm like, 20 minutes, 24 minutes. How are we going to squeeze all this in to 20? Like, that's impossible. So I, I appreciate being on. I love talking ball with you. I love talking about the numbers. I love following them during the season. I love following them in game. Uh, I think our viewers appreciate it too. I know our company appreciates it very much so at this point. And, and it's fun for me because this is the league I know. I, I don't, while I don't get the opportunity to venture outside the league, I'm lucky that I am embedded with the best league in college football and and get to see these teams every weekend so so thanks for having me and and happy betting this year yeah no thank you no look the, the, a lot of times the shelf life of these pods is so short so that's why we typically only go 25 minutes but this this is about a month and a half shelf life so uh we're going to try to preview a lot of conferences and you were the guy i wanted to go with with the sec and it's fresh off media days it made so much sense so Really appreciate the wealth of information. Everyone, I took a bunch of notes. I'm sure uh, our listeners are as well. And uh, with the NBA season behind us, I know Olympics are here, but really football season already. So we appreciate it, dude. It's it's too bad we don't have Korean baseball to bet on. Anymore. I mean, we could. We, just <laughs> we do. follow it as easy. We do. <laughs> right. <yeah>. right. <laughs> All right, my man. Happy to be, be well. with you, Doug. Thanks, buddy. Money won is twice as sweet as money earned. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of the Behind the Bets podcast. As I mentioned, it was a little lengthier than normal. But again, you can come back to it. You can pause it. Uh, Listen to it at any point over the next six weeks or so with college football upon us. Win totals are obviously there to fire on and uh, really getting excited. I'm fired up. I, I wish it was starting this weekend because all that info Tom just gave really put us uh, kind of just hungry for that action. Um, and don't forget, we have Daily Wager podcast still and obviously the TV show. We're going to be, be dark on the TV show a couple times in August, but we'll have every weekday. So go check that out in the podcast. However, you get your podcast Monday through Friday, it posts about 1230 PM Eastern and it's in and out in less than 10 minutes. So if you just want a little, uh, tray of, of plays for that day, that's where you want to go. But this was a nice breakdown of the entire sec. So special thanks again to Tom Hart and to everyone else. And we turned the page onto football season.